I'd really love watch. Hi and hello, watch fans, and welcome to episode 47 of Fratello On Air. I'm Rob, calling in from Dresden, and I'm joined by Balaj all the way in Karlsruhe. Hi, buddy. How are you doing? Hey, Rob. I'm good. How are you, I'm, man? How's I'm things? very well, and I'm quite excited about the subject matter that we've got to discuss with you um, this evening. Uh, we have recently been talking to a very talented individual, going by the name of Camille, uh, from Poland, who otherwise is known as The Lapinist, or on Instagram, if you want to check out his handle, it is at Lapinist underscore watch restoration. Now, Camille has got a very specific set of talents that he spent many, many years refining, and they pertain to the refinishing of specifically Seiko and Grand Seiko cases. Now, we know that the Fratelli has a lot of love for Seiko and Grand Seiko as brands, so we thought, as well as having this interview published on Fratello in written format, we would also bring it to the airwaves and Balaj and I would run through the interview back and forth, playing the roles of interviewer and interviewee, and also just chat about the questions asked and the answers given and around the subject, and also share some personal experiences of watch collecting, especially in the vintage sphere. So, Balaj, you actually have a few Seiko pieces to talk of, don't you? Tell us what you've got in your collection. I'm no Mike Stockton when it comes to vintage Seiko, but I have my favorites. And it started with, well, it started with RJ. And I think for him, the craze started with Mike. So I kind of blame Mike for all of that. And it started with with King Seiko because I think, but maybe I'm wrong, Mike was the guy who kind of pulled RJ into the King Cycle craze. And he bought his, uh, I mean, RJ bought his first King Cycle and he he brought it to one of the, I think it was one of the Southern QPs when we met in London. And he said, you really need this, man. This is a cool piece. And um, it really was a cool piece. And it made me started my tiny journey on Vintage Cycle and I bought my very first King Cycle, which obviously you cannot see because it's a podcast, but you can see it because I can show you in the camera. This is the the 5625-7000. So it's a high beat King Cycle movement. I mean, well, a high beat King Cycle with high beat movement date, just a normal classic piece. If you see the, the, the model, you know, the case shape. Um, this is something that Grand Cycle also um, made and they reissued a few years ago. Yeah, that was the first piece. And then I thought that next to the King Cycle, I have to have a Grand Cycle. So I bought one of those as well. And that one is the, the 5646 uh, 7010, 7010, uh, which is very similar. Oh, lovely. Um, it, it has kind of a, I wouldn't say hooded lugs because they're not hooded, but they're definitely um it looks like it's a funky c-shaped case uh day date uh, also high beat movement and then i have two vintage chronographs because i love chronographs one is the 6139 which is the column wheel you know from 1969 the one that was probably the first automatic chronograph movement outside of switzerland or outside of europe we don't know because I guess it's a never-ending debate whether it was Zenith, whether it was the you know the Hamilton Breitling Buren Group, or whether it was Psycho who made it. In any case, I have the sixty-one thirty-nine in this beautiful gray, dark bluish iteration. This is the um, the sixty-one thirty-nine dash seventy seventy, and then I also have the jumbo version, the sixty-one thirty-eight, uh, which is its bigger brother with the two subdials, um, white hands. 
and uh, yellow chronograph hand. So that's it. It's a very modest vintage cycle collection. What kind of condition were they in when you picked them up? They're okay condition. The movement is serviced, but they're not polished. They're not, you know, other than than surface cleaning, nothing really happened to them. So um, none of them are refinished, but they're they're okay. I mean, they're they're honest vintage pieces. So. Honest pieces are, for some people, the way it's got to be when it comes to vintage collecting. But for some of us, and I, I class myself in this category, having something brought back to its box fresh standards is incredibly cathartic and would be my goal if I were to be a more uh, ardent vintage collector. I'm not. I have, I don't know how many vintage pieces, maybe 10 or 15, spread across very small brands. And they're not in great states of repair, but I don't have anything that's completely battered. Um, I think what I stay away from when it comes to vintage models tends to be chromed cases that just use simple base metal underneath, if I can, simply because that annoys me. And it's very hard to re-chrome a case very well. You know, it's, it's not something I would want to do shoddily or pay someone to mess up because if they get it wrong, they make it even worse. And there's only so much material you can remove before you don't have a case left at all. I have made one or two exceptions on that front simply because of the dial in the hands and they were just too glorious to let slip through my fingers. And I buy them sometimes in the hope that I might be able to design a watch around that style and bring it back to life in a different way. But if you have a watch that's made of uh, steel, particularly steel, and it's in a bad state of repair, Camille can actually bring it back to uh, definitely as good as it was um, when it left the factory, maybe even better. Now, don't get your hopes up if you are an ardent collector of Seiko, Grand Seiko, and so on. He's booked up for another year, um, at least. This is how popular he is. If you go on his Instagram, honestly, it is it is really, really satisfying to just scroll through those images and to look at what he took into his workshop and what's come out. It's bizarre. It doesn't look real. It looks like uh, renders, right? You know, the, the, the finished product is just too good to be true, but it is. And I have to say the photos as well. I mean, I don't know if he's the one who's doing the pictures or, uh, you know, he, if he uses a professional photographer, but the pictures and this before, after comparisons are just, just marvelous. It's perfect angle, same angle, just uh, amazing, truly breathtaking, yeah. Very cool stuff. Very, very cool. He's obviously stuff. a talented guy. Um, I, I spoke to him obviously um, because of the interview that we're going to run through in a second. And he tells me that he, he is all alone. I did ask if he planned on taking on an apprentice and uh, expanding his workshop and whatnot. But what he enjoys most of all really is is the autonomy and the ability to choose. And we'll, we'll, we'll hear that answer in the interview, of course. But for anybody that's eager to disconnect from this podcast and contact Camille immediately, chill out. He's busy, he's booked, but if you do contact him after you finish listening to our podcast and le- leaving us a five-star review, which we would very much appreciate, he will consider everything. And of course, things are cancelled occasionally. Some owners don't want to wait as long as they have to, to have the job done properly. And since he won't rush anything through or do a, a half-baked job, um, he sometimes has slots opening up. So do reach out to him if you're interested in getting a case refinished. He can do anything, but he really focuses on Seiko and Grand Seiko. So um, that's that's what you should really uh, contact him in regards to. Can you jump the queue if you're uh, Fratello? Editor? I don't know. Um, I haven't asked. <laughs> I don't have any. Uh, I don't have any vintage Seiko. I tell you what, Balaj. I think we can no, we can joking. make a compromise here because, of course. It would be lovely to jump the queue if we had reason to, but what would be worthwhile perhaps is if we did go and visit him as soon as we're allowed to, as soon as lockdown eases. Yes. And we can take along yes. a couple of your pieces and 
I mean, we might have to spend a couple of days there while he works on a case, but wouldn't it be fascinating for us and for the readers and listeners, I think, if we actually got some video of this, you know, watch the process because there's loads of stages that he goes through with case welding. Yeah. Re-adding material. You know what I could do? do? I could drive to you across the country from the west, southwest of Germany to the east of Germany, Mm -hmm. spend a day there. You have wine me and dine me, show me around in your neck of the woods, and then... It's just it's just a quick jump, you know. I mean, from yeah, from Dresden to to Krakow, it's not that big of a deal, and you can hop in my uh, my whip, and we can uh, make our way to. That Poland. sounds like a delightful road trip, and yes, I hundred mm-hmm. percent sign up for that. And I will do my best to wine and dine you in the manner to which you've become accustomed. I'll have to ask RJ for a company credit card because I think you'll bleed me dry if you spend a night in Dresden. Yeah, definitely worth it. Yeah, let's uh, let's hope we can do it in the second half of 2021. That would be awesome. Before you know, 2020. You know, as, as the Fratello team in general, we all want to create this kind of content when we're on site and we're actually seeing these things being done and getting a real flavor for what kind of effort and passion goes into these projects. And uh, it would be, I think, wonderful for for our audience to see that. And you might get a, a, a cheeky refinish on your King Seiko or whatever it is you, you would choose. Which one would you put forward? Which one would you give him to, to bring back to life? So the, the King Seiko had a service by our, or one of our uh, in-house, quote-unquote, in-house watchmaker, watchmaker Paul. But I think that, yeah, the Grand Seiko is in, in kind of sorry condition compared to the King Seiko. Probably I'd go with the Grand Seiko. And I still need the golden, uh, golden coin from the back. I kind of missed that. What is missing? So, yeah. Yeah, it's missing. Sadly, I I need to find one. Uh, I have the one on the King Cycle, but not on the Grand Cycle. But it's still a lovely piece, and because it's on the back, nobody can see that it's missing. But yeah, this one probably the Grand Cycle. I would start with the Grand Cycle, and then we can work work our way through the the whole collection, which is only, as I said, four pieces. So easy peasy. Sounds like a good plan. Sounds like a good place to start. I think that would be right up your street. Um, obviously given the talents that he has. And if you've not yet seen the Instagram page, when you do get a chance to check it out, you'll know what we're talking about. He can really pick and choose what he does. And he's, he's so passionate about the, uh, the Japanese brands. It's uh, I'm sure it'd be a pleasure for him to tart up your slightly neglected grand Seiko. There you have it. Right. Let's dive into this interview. Uh, do you want to be me or do you want to be Camille? Why don't you be me? You can, this you can would do my voice. This would be uh, this would be a dream come true <laughs> to be you, even for half an hour. I'd love. Honestly, that. it would be enough. You'd get so sick of not being able to reach the top shelf in your kitchen. You'd you'd want to switch back. I have to have a stepladder. I got a stepladder in there. No joke. Hey, you're not a you're not a midget. Come on. No, no, I'm not a midget. Um, but I'm I'm. Uh, what are you? What five? What five? Five nine? Five ten? Are you uh, Are you taking a piss? No, I really I I don't know. I'm five seven. One seventy five. I'm one seventy. I'm one seventy. Wow, that's not bad. Muggsy Bogues was shorter than me. <laughs> you know what's really bad for our listeners is that you can't see his face. <laughs> He's uh, <laughs> he, he looks. Um, you look actually like you feel sorry for me, which is painful. Actually, it's worse. <laughs> worse, worse than, all right, all right. I have to tell you, I don't feel sorry for you at all, dude. Muggsy Bogues is only once. I know Muggsy. Muggsy's about five three, I think, in our in our money. But yeah, five three, and Spud Webb is probably even shorter than him. Come on, five seventy. Five. I mean, uh, one seventy is not bad. I'm only one eighty two. I'm not Dutch. Those guys are Vikings. They're like 
six six. Uh, but no, all jokes aside, I'd love to be you, and I'd love to read the questions. And then, in this case, I guess you will be Camille reading the answers. I'm not going to do an accent though. I don't cool. know what he sounds like. He might have he might have a Scottish accent for all I know, and I'm not trying that. Boot. <laughs> Since I was young, <laughs> I was a wee lad. <laughs> Go to the hoose. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, Hi, Rob. Hi, Camille. My first question to you is, tell us about your early life, please. Well, since I was young, around four or five years old, I've been interested in beautiful objects like stones, shells, jewelry, or small wooden sculptures. When I was about five, I started sculpting in wood by myself. Yes, with a sharp metal knife, and I still have some of the scars to show for it. I also love drawing and painting, but I wasn't so good at that. When I was a teenager, I worked with my father designing and making, by hand, oak garden furniture. That helped me earn my first money, which I later spent on basic tools and equipment. And as I got older, I started to think about my education, maybe pursuing some artistic field like sculpting or architecture. But I finally ended up as an economist studying in, hey, how, how good is your pronunciation here? Jagiellonian. Jagiellonian. Jagiellonian University in Krakow. Thanks, yeah. mate. Jagiellonians. Those are, it's, I think it's a, it's a family like the stewards or the tutors. Oh, I see. Because at one point, the Jagiellos were uh, kings of Hungary as well. We had the same kings with Poland. So Jagiellonian. I learned a lot about Hungarian history when I uh, did podcasts. There you I go. Like you should visit the country. Well, I would love to. I've been only twice to Budapest and, you know. Oh, you have? Yeah. I went for work once, um, training Babosh. I don't know if you know the retailer. in Babosh. <laughs> and yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Babosh. that was an interesting, interesting training session because uh, Mr. Babosh doesn't speak English. He speaks a bit of German. So I don't speak Hungarian, speak a bit of German. So we had to conduct this training session in um, dual broken German. It was, um, it was brilliant. I, I don't think either of us knew what was going on, but I did go again once on holiday just for a few days. I loved it. I thought it was beautiful, but I don't know anything about it. And I was probably just touching all the tourist hotspots. So, you know, anytime, mm. buddy, anytime. I, I mean, I, 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 my rucksack, I bought in Budapest from 10 or 10, 10, 10, yeah, from Jolt. Yeah. Yes, 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 yes. And I sent you a video last time I was at his shop, four in the morning, after a few drinks. Well, you know, I think we I work hard, we play hard. What can we say? Four in the morning in Zalt's place. True. Sounds good to me. True. So, yeah. uh, interesting. So he's been at it all his life, basically. Um, he has, you know, had an interest in doing these kind of things since he was a little kid. And that sort of thread followed all the way through. But he ended up studying economics in a university in Krakow. I guess like many of us, right, you need to find a normal profession uh, if you want to make money and nobody tells you to get a lapping machine and start finishing uh, vintage cycle cases and that's going to be your uh, bread for the rest. Maybe it's not even his bread. Maybe that's just his hobby. We'll find out in, in the interview. But I, I mean, I guess that's normal. Indeed it is. Isn't but, you it? know, seeing this kind of thing, seeing the work that he's putting out now, it just makes your respect grow, doesn't it? When you think, well, this is someone that's done this off their own back. You know, it wasn't like a family trade that, I don't know, when I see that kind of finishing, I think, oh, you must have been grown up at the knee of an excellent polisher and it's been handed down by generation to generation to generation or whatever. It's just, um, it's nuts. It's, it's crazy to do, I mean, polishing it, there's polishing and polishing, you know, there's, there's differences between the grades of it. I spent a year in a polishing room in uh, Omega in Southampton, mostly because I think I pissed off my boss and he wanted me away from the workshop. So he sent me down there for a year and uh, I refinished a lot of bracelets in that time, but 
nothing like the standard that you see here. And this is stuff that is on those images on Instagram. It's right under a big macro lens. You can see any kind of imperfection of which there is none. And, you know, Mm -hmm. even under a normal loop, I could look at bracelets that were up to the standard that we were turning out from the workshop and think, yeah, you know, it's it's okay. It could be better. But if you put a macro lens on it, it would have been like, no, it's perfect. Yeah. And I I have to tell you, I'm really proud of you because we've been on the recording for 25 minutes and you have not yet pulled a Polish guy polishing pun. I was, I was expecting that to come from you and I had to bring it up. Was it too easy? Um, You know what? When I worked in that polishing department in Omega, three of my four colleagues were Polish as well. And there's a lot of Polish immigrants in Southampton. Don't know why, big community there. Um, And they were some of my best friends when I was working in the workshop. And I don't know whether it's because I was close to them and I never sort of like, I never drew a line in my head and say, oh, these guys are Polish. To me, they were just like the guys. And so I never really, I never actually noticed Polish and Polish until about, I don't know, seven months into my time in the room. And then, because I pride myself on not being as dense as this story is making me out to be. But I walked into the room one morning and I went, hey guys, guys, guess what? <laughs> guess what I've just noticed? thinking I was like, you know, Mr. Clever. And I was like, did you know that Polish is the same word as Polish, but without a capital letter? And they all looked at me like I just, uh, I don't know, left an unwelcome gift on their doorstep, shall we say. And uh, (laughs) I I took a while to live that one down. I've had several kind of incredibly embarrassing moments in my watchmaking career, and I deserve all of the ribbing that I got and will no doubt get in lieu of this podcast. Move on to the next question, please, Rob. Yes. Uh, it Probably, it's, by the way, it's almost as funny for Polish people as the hungry, hungry, you know? <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> kind of. Yeah, I'm from Hungary. Are you hungry? <laughs> Man, if I had a dollar every time I heard that joke, I probably had $200 or so. That's not as many dollars as I'd have hoped. I mean, <laughs> no, <laughs> I was expecting it to be a lot more. It's still better than coming from Turkey, man. I'm telling you. <laughs> oh, wow. It's just endless. Well, we should have a separate podcast. Yeah, it <laughs> is. It is. Okay. So Rob, Rob, second question. What was your first encounter with watches? So I remember some mechanical watches worn by my grandfathers and my father. Things like uh, Russian Polyots, Vostoks, and Rakata. Um, I repaired and restored some of them a while ago, and I have a few of them still in my possession, which is nice. They were interesting from an engineering perspective, but they weren't very beautiful. I remember some electronic watches that I had as a child, especially some advanced Casio watches. When I was 18, I bought my first mechanical watch for the money that my parents gave me for my birthday. It was a cheap and used Seiko 5 in a stainless steel case with an original bracelet. At that moment, to me, it was the most beautiful and affordable watch that I could dream of. I still have it in my drawer waiting for some movement and casework to be done. While I was studying, I visited the UK and there I bought my second watch, a 9 karat gold Omega. I sold it a few years later and bought a Seiko 6139-60100 speed timer automatic chronograph. Almost like mine. Same movement, 6139 legendary you see that's the kind of movement that can inspire people into a career obviously so we, we were reaching his, his uh his late teens now 18 years old and then a uh, little bit older while he was studying i'm sure at the university he headed over to the uk and he picked up a nine karat gold omega which he flipped for a 6139 i'm mad at him for flipping the Geneve, <laughs> but i'm not mad at him for picking up the 6139 the speed timer because it's a lovely well, watch know. 
and it's an iconic movement. It is a great movement. And the, the, the Omega Genève is also a great watch. But I mean, you know, a lot of us go through this phase in our collecting career, you know, when we're certainly new to the game and we don't have much money to spare for watches, you have to move on from one if you want to bring another one into the collection. You know, I, I know guys that buy, uh, say, a Breitling, they wear it for a couple of years and they have no desire to get rid of the Breitling, but they desperately want to wear a Seamaster. So they have to sell the Breitling to fund it. Totally normal for a lot of people. Yeah, one in, one, one out. One in, one out, exactly. Next question, please, Rob. When did you get into refinishing watch cases? Hang on a second. Is, did you do an accent then? Are you trying to do me? No. You definitely... No, did I? That wasn't your normal no. voice. All right, try it again. It was. I'm sorry. Try it again. When did you get into refinishing watch cases? So after I finished studying, I didn't want to work as an economist or a banker, etc. So I decided that I would run my own business as a jeweler. I wasn't a professional or educated jeweler, but more like an artistic jeweler. I designed and fabricated my jewelry by hand using traditional techniques. This work taught me patience and precision, which was invaluable when it came to my future work as a vintage watch restorer. After eight years, I started to work with watches. First with my own watches, as I wanted them to look like new. And then shortly afterwards, I realized there must be some secret behind this art, as I couldn't find the way to achieve the shiny surface and sharp edges at the same time. That became my goal, my dream, my obsession to find a solution. He was really, really very driven. And that's super cool. You know, you have your, you have this tool and no pun intended that school gives you right in your hand to become, as he said, a banker. And he said, okay, I did it. Probably parents pushed him, right? Get a proper education. He's got a tool in his hands and he said, I don't want to do that. I want to create jewelry, refinish watches. That, that's that's the type of, you know, determination I think that that is really you you need to see this in the watch industry to 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 achieve something. Right, exactly. And when you look at the end result, when you look at what you can do now, it looks like an obvious decision of of course, you know, of course don't be an economist, of course don't be a banker. You can do something exceptional, go and do that. But he didn't know at the time. He just took a chance, followed a dream, followed a passion and learned on the job. Um, and the next question shines a light on that, right? You can you can read it in, in whatever voice you like. Yeah. What kind of training did you have before? So he says, the next question. or should I say I, as I'm Camille, I say, I'm a completely self-taught man. As soon as I got interested in watch case refinishing, I started reading books about watch case making, tool making, metal treatment, and machining, etc. Finally, I started working on my own tools and machines, which I believed would help me improve my skills to get more and more experience. After about three years of research, I fabricated my own lapping machine. Hang on. He fabricated his own lapping machine. At this point, please, please hit pause on the podcast exit spotify or whatever you are go on to instagram look his account up at lapinist underscore watch restoration and remember that when you see the pictures <laughs> insane okay maybe he used a professional machine now i don't know but i'm blown good away. stuff all of this was self-designed as were my self-designed and fabricated tools they were necessary to achieve the perfectly flat and polished surfaces i was trying to reach I spent another three years improving the technique so the results were as perfect as the famous Zoratsu finishing. It is important to mention that from the very beginning, I was interested mainly in Grand Seiko restoration, which meant that I had to achieve top results. There was no shortcut. Ultimate precision was my only goal. I did work with other brands as well, but they were not as demanding as any Grand Seiko case. Oh, so he just he decided to just bin off the easy option. Oh, this this uh, this Rolex. Mm-hmm. That's a piece of cake. Do that in my sleep. Rubbish. I'll I'll have a go at the Omega. Oh no 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 thanks. Give me the Grand Seiko. Give me the Zeratsu. I mean what? Uh, he's a masochist. 
Uh, and do you know, I, of course you do know, because you're the Oracle, right? But I, up until a few years ago, I did not know that the Saratsu finishing is actually coming from Germany. Yeah, it's a Salas. So crazy. Salas machine. Yeah, it's a, at the company, we had a, a Werkstudent, um, a, a guy who was studying, um, and while he was studying, he was working for us, Tim. Tim Brining, uh, shout out to Tim, and he's into that stuff. He's into uh, into the technical aspects of watchmaking, uh, crazy stuff. And he told me that in, indeed there's the Zalatz brothers who created this this uh, machine that the Japanese used, and they could not pronounce Zalatz, so they said Zaratsu. Some Japanese brands spell it with an S, Saratsu instead of Zaratsu. You ever seen that? Because the original is S A L L A Z, Salaz. Right, right. And uh, and we spell it with a Z, like Zara T S U, like Zaratsu. Right. right. It was it was it's it was fascinating for me to learn that all this machine stuff and uh, the Zaratsu brothers and Gebrüder Zalatz. Gebrüder Zalatz. Very nice. Gebrüder Zalatz. I like it. Yeah. Okay. Shall we move on to the next ahead, question? Go ahead. Hit me up. Why do you do it? Is there a philosophy behind it? I love what I'm doing. Just as simple as that. I love beautiful objects. I have done since I was a kid. It gave me so much satisfaction to have the skills and equipment to bring these objects back to their former glory after many years of wear and tear, damage, unprofessional treatment, etc. My love for beautiful things and perfect shapes evolved to the profession that lets me bring this beauty back to them. Another factor was that a few years ago, vintage Grand Seiko, King Seiko, or other affordable Seiko watches weren't very expensive and sought after, and people didn't care about them, not at least to the level they deserve to be cared about. There were many workshops where collectors and enthusiasts could have their Swiss or German watches restored, but no one wanted and no one was able to restore those most complicated cases that came from Japan. I wanted to offer this exclusive service for Seiko lovers as I was one of them. Hmm. Does he do servicing as well or only case restoration? Believe he only does case restoration. I'm not sure if he works in tandem with a watchmaker. I I think he does have some contacts in that field because it would be strange, wouldn't it, if you shelled a movement and did the case back to perfect standard and then the watch didn't work when he put it back together. So I'm pretty sure that he has a capacity to have that watch serviced, but I don't think he does that himself. And I think it's all, it's also tricky sometimes with these Seiko crystals and stuff like that. And that's what I heard. And also because some of them are like monocoque cases, um, you have to pay attention when you install the movement, right? And things like that. Um, I don't know, but okay. Anyways, next question. What is your proudest achievement within watchmaking? It may sound like a neat slogan, but every single case is an achievement for me. Each case is different, and even if it comes from the same watch model, it has completely different history, and therefore different markings, different damage, different scars. I must treat it exclusively and with the utmost attention. There are no good and bad cases in my eyes. No one case is more or less important than another. A case may be cheap, it may be commonplace, but this is a case that belongs to someone, and to that someone, it means the whole world. It could be a memory or a great financial investment or something that they could not imagine their lives without. I had a chance to work with some rare pieces, so I was happy to see them in person and hold them in my hands. I remember when I worked with Grand Seiko 4580-7000, which is an extremely rare piece. Although it was not the most complicated case I've refinished, the rarity of the watch still caused thrills. Additionally, the case was made of a special alloy. There would have been no chance to replace the case if anything had gone wrong. Fortunately, it came out perfectly, and its owner was very happy with the result of my work. I had to Google that. What, the reference? The reference. Well, what is it like? It's kind of a C-shape. It's a Grand Seiko with a black dial, a beautiful black dial, and kind of an oval C-shape-ish 
case. Oh yeah, design tonneau-ish with ta- yeah, in between tonneau and C yeah. shape with uh, vertical. Uh, I'm sorry, horizontal polishing and then beveled edges and polished bezel. And I, it seems to me that they polished sides. Interesting. It's very interesting. Very watch, unusual. I yeah. Very unusual. I've not seen mm-hmm. it before. Well, he must be right then. It's rare. Very cool. Then there's a. I also found um, a vintage magazine or a vintage. No, it's a vintage catalog actually of these pieces from an article by SJX. So search a reference number, guys. It's pretty cool. Wow. Now we. Now we gets busy. Tell us some horror stories and some creative fixes you have to conceive to get top results. Fortunately, up until now, I haven't had any real horror story, and most of my work has gone very smoothly. But I would say that sometimes when it comes to vintage Seiko cases, poor steel quality can be a problem. From time to time, the steel is cracked or full of internal imperfections like micro cracks and inclusions. It's really hard to laser weld, and sometimes it doesn't look perfect even after many, many hours of improvements. Unfortunately, I can't do anything about it, so me and my customers sometimes have to face the reality that this case, even if it's perfectly finished, may still bear some micro imperfections. Usually, they are hard to spot with the naked eye, so they don't influence the overall case appearance too much at all. They are factory imperfections, so they are part of the case from the beginning. Creative fixes are related more to the tool making than to case finishing itself. I invented, designed, and fabricated many tools that are dedicated exclusively for Zorazu polishing. One of them is the tool which allows me to apply Zorazu finishing to the cases without the case back. That's that's the monoblock cases you were talking about, or the monocoque cases. Yeah. In general, case backs must be removed prior to polishing so the case can be held by the special case holder against the lapping plate. That's an important part of the Salaz machines, right? So when there is no case back, keeping the perfect angle during polishing is virtually impossible. The tool that I fabricated lets me apply Zoratsu polishing even for rare King Seiko cases that have no case back. Okay, so Camille is not only an economist by education but a jeweler watch refinisher and some kind of an engineer right who's building his own machinery or tools to assist with his machinery to be honest when rob asked me to join this podcast i was like yeah why not but i was not ready for this because now i'm i'm hooked on his story uh i have to say i no i all jokes aside i'm i'm really um amazed by by this dude who I've never seen and I've never met never talked to but just by what he's saying and you know he's so humble and so down to earth right yeah. uh in his answers I, I really hope we can we can visit him one I kind of wanted to drag you in like uh without too much preamble because I went through exactly the same thing that you're going through now when I read these answers for the first time and I looked at these pictures and just felt my mind blowing you know, I was like, what is, what is going on? Like, this is nuts. I, I've worked in this industry before. I, I've seen these machines in practice. And that's not the sort of thing that people normally just pick up themselves. And, oh, you know, this case doesn't have the right chuck to hold it against the lapping plate. No problem. I'll just invent one for it. I mean, that, that's pretty, pretty <laughs> impressive stuff. Okay, let's move on. Next question. Next question. Do you have a watch collection? Yes, I do. But at the moment, it is very, very small. Some time ago, I realized that all of my private watches have been disassembled and put into a drawer as I had no time to service and restore them. Since then, I've not bought more watches, but of course, I'm planning to expand my collection in the future years. 
The collection includes only vintage sacred chronographs, and there are 6139 speed timers, some 7016 and 7018 chronographs, and my favorite watch, the Seiko 6139-6040 chronograph. Do you approve, Balaj? Uh, yes. Good. The 6139 is also one of my favorites. I have to say that the uh, the 7016, you know which one those mm-hmm. are? Yeah. The Well, some call them the uh, Monaco's, right? Or there is a version with a square case. I love them. And they are flyback, which is pretty cool. You can get a, a vintage Seiko flyback chronograph with a 7016. Uh, caliber for I wouldn't say a few hundred euros, but let's say six, seven, eight hundred. The weird euros. thing was, well, not weird. It's totally understandable because the Seiko back catalog and the Grand Seiko history is just awesome, and more and more people are becoming aware of it, especially since Grand Seiko's international expansion that commenced in earnest just a couple of years ago. And the prices on the pre-loved, pre-owned, second-hand, whatever you want to call it, market are going through the roof now. So I, I don't want to scare anybody out there and to spend in more than they're comfortable with definitely don't ever do that but if you do like these models and you're thinking well shall i get one now or shall i wait you know try and find one in good condition obviously always condition 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 but when you got a guy like camille on the other end of the line maybe all that matters is dialing hands <laughs> you know yeah exactly and they're lovely pieces i mean the 6139 the 7 uh 70 16 the 70 they're all very, very cool pieces um, with great movements. As I said, flyback chronograph. Um, yeah, don't sleep them, on a flyback. We are... love a flyback chronograph. I do, anyway. I love it. No, no, absolutely. Oh, me too. I don't have one, but I'd love to um, get one. And and, his, uh, and he said that his favorite is the 6139-6040, which I believe Mike has one. Of course, he has He does have most of the Seiko, thing. yeah. Yeah, I think he has this one uh, because he wrote an article versus the Zenith Air Primero. Um, this is the the gold, like a champagne dial with a white sub dial and the black and white um, bezel version. It's a beautiful piece. So I can see why Camille is in love with that and why that's his favorite piece. And finally, someone who doesn't say that my favorite 6139 is the Pogre. Right, exactly. Although he has done a pretty smashing job on a couple of Pogue refinishings uh, on his uh, on his feed. Just uh, crazy stuff. Crazy stuff indeed. True that. Next. Probably a stupid question, but what is your favorite brand? I mean, okay, forgive me for this one. I'm speaking as myself at this moment, but like by this point, uh, obviously I hadn't seen the answers before I asked the questions. We conducted this interview over email, so it wasn't like I was ignoring him and just like suppressing everything that had gone before. This was just in there. So I'm going to roll. And he was like, what? It's like, favorite model? Dude, really, dude? Seriously? We've been talking for like three hours. Like, WTF. Oh, what's your favorite brand? <laughs> what? It's Tissot, obviously. Jeez. Right. Okay. I'm Camille again. Of course, it's <laughs> he didn't say it like that because he wasn't pissed off. He was like, of course it is Seiko and Grand Seiko, dude. Duh. As I mentioned, as I mentioned before, I love vintage Seiko automatic chronographs, but in the future, I'd like to buy some more vintage Grand Seiko chronographs. <clears throat> right. Yeah. Okay. I deserve that. I love modern Grand Seiko as well, but vintage pieces are much more affordable for me. I have a rather small wrist, so vintage pieces suit me better. I also appreciate Swiss brands like Patek or Jaeger-LeCoultre, but not for their look. 
rather for their amazing movements, complications, and engineering achievements. When it comes to sporty watches, my favorite model is the Seiko 61396040 with a champagne dial. But the most beautiful watches among all Seiko watches for me are the Grand Seiko 6185-8020 VFA and the Grand Seiko 4580-7010 VFA. Both watches have amazing dials and beautiful Zeratsu cases. They are perfectly balanced, elegant, and of course, hard to find. From the collector's point of view, the most precious watch for me would be the Seiko 5718 Chronograph. I agree. The most precious watch would be the Seiko 5718 for he me. He knows as well. his stuff. For he sure. knows his stuff, this man, doesn't he? I mean, it seems to me that he lives and breathes and eats and sleeps Seiko, Grand Seiko, King Seiko all day, every day. Can't blame him for that. Next. Can you refinish other brands? Yes, of course. I also work with other brands, but I mainly focus on vintage Seiko and Grand Seiko watches. This is what we said at the top of the show, by the way. You know, he could basically do anything with the materials and the experience and the the ingenuity that he possesses, but his focus is Grand Seiko. So there are many other workshops out there which specialize in other brands like Rolex, Audemars Piguet, etc. But I want to stay loyal to Seiko. It's also good for me to be an expert in one brand only. It allows me to know the models very well and to also have the tools and equipment that let me take care of my customers' watches in the most competent manner immediately to hand. Very nice. You know what I'm wondering? How did his workload look like in, let's say, 2017 versus 2020? Well, we can definitely get him on uh, get him on the line and find out at some point because it would be fascinating to know how the business has progressed. And uh, I'd also be interested to know whether this podcast and the article has any effect on his email inbox. I would guess it would, really, because let's face it, the Fratelli love Seiko and Grand Seiko. And when you see mm-hmm. this stuff, even if you've got a vintage Seiko in your collection that you never thought about getting refinished maybe it's just got some moderate scratch into it maybe a ding somewhere on the lug that you just thought hey i'm gonna have to live with that because it can't be repaired when you see this stuff you're probably gonna do what i did and start like willfully damaging your watches just so you have a reason to get them refinished Uh, yeah like me as i said i never thought about refinishing or having the the grand cycle refinished but now that we're talking (laughs) i mean uh, given that we can do that road trip Don't worry, it's going to happen. We'll film it all the way. We need to get some good equipment so that this looks awesome, but we'll definitely do it. And we need a good car. We need a a sponsor. And not Stadtmobil, but some brand. Mustang. Uh, Whatever. Other than Dacia. I had the chance to get a Mustang once, and it was a great life lesson. I blew blew it it because I was an arsehole, um, and I really deserved to blow it. It's the only time in my life I've ever been rude to somebody at a um, rental car place, despite many frustrations that I faced around the world with them. But I'd, I'd, I'd woken up and I was um, I was a little bit hungover and I was a little late and I might maybe have missed a flight. <clears throat> and I was at the airport and I needed to drive from Dallas to uh, Austin. And uh, I got to the front of a long queue and I was like, oh, I need a car. I, I, I just, whatever, I need a car, any car. And the woman was so nice. She was like, well, Mr. Nuds, I can say happily we can give you an upgrade today. You can have the brand new Ford Mustang. I was like, listen, I don't give a damn about the Mustang or whatever. I just need a car right now. I need to leave right now. And I was I was full ass, full ass. Mm-hmm. And uh, she said, okay, sir, whatever you want. And she gave me the keys to a Mitsubishi. And there were two um, 
two Japanese businessmen in the uh, in the queue behind me, and I think they thought that their lucky day had arrived. It clearly had, um, because as I traipsed out to the car park with these Mitsubishi keys in hand, you know, pressing the button as you do to see which lights pop on them and tell you your car's there. Uh, I was quickly overtaken by these two uh, two businessmen guffawing loudly and whooping with joy like schoolboys when they pressed the uh, button on their keys, the lights on this brand new red, gorgeous Mustang with black racing stripes beeped next to uh, my Mitsubishi, which literally had duct tape holding the back window in place and they were parked next to one another. And I had to, had to climb into the Mitsubishi and drive for three and a half hours on the Texan highways to get to my destination. There you go. There you go. What does that teach you? Teaches you don't be an asshole to people who are trying to be nice to you or anyone. Preach. <laughs> you know, <laughs> good lessons. Anyway, uh, we'll have to try and find a Mustang. Hopefully, uh, hopefully someone will take pity on us and deliver it to us or something cool. I live next to Stuttgart. So if we, Austin. if we take something, it better be an AMG Benz or a Porsche. Oh, well, yeah, I'm something sure we like can, that. I'm sure we can figure that out. We Definitely. Next, which other brands do you like working on the most when time permits? So in general, I like working with cases that look pleasant to my eye. Simple lines and a marriage of polished and brushed surfaces always looks good to me. I also like vintage cases with a tonneau shape. So some vintage Omega and Hoyas are uh, frequently seen in my workshop. And I think I saw an Omega on his Instagram, although it wasn't a tonneau shape. It was, yes, here we go, here we are, um... It's a caliber 284 from the 50s, one of these early Seamasters with the honeycomb uh, dial and the applied gold indexes. It's one of those watches on these references that I always found funny because the case is steel, but everything else is gold, right? right. And that's just how it left the factory. You wouldn't see this nowadays, but uh, it's a lovely piece. I mean, the before picture is not bad, but the after is definitely different. I mean, you can see it's it's much, much more, I wouldn't say shiny, but... I mean, the before is not, it, it wasn't too bad. She checked, have you yeah, found yeah, a picture? Yeah, I found a picture. Yeah, it's, it's not like yeah. it's completely mullered and there's no huge gouges. No, no, but no. there's a couple of pits on the uh, mm-hmm. on the five o'clock lugs, shall we say, which uh, you wouldn't have thought you'd be able to get out without losing some serious material. It's quite clear from the after picture that he's built up that lug before he's gone at it with the, uh, with the tool. It's razor and sharp. That's the thing, because this watch was never finished like that when it left the factory from Omega. That's not what it looked like originally. But if it was never finished like that, then isn't that altering the look? It's making it... Because if you bring it back to the original condition... It's so much better. Surely it couldn't have looked that crisp and that sharp. That kind of surface finishing. That's not just polishing. I mean, he's salas that, hasn't he? I don't know, but... I mean, you know, rebuilding or reinstating the watch back to the original condition is one thing. But altering the look... Is something else. I don't know. I'm totally on board with it if it makes it better. I mean, certainly when it comes to something like finishing, you know, that's an inter- That's a really interesting one. Actually, nobody's ever dug into that particular angle because this isn't like, say, taking a Yachtmaster and delivering it to Bamford and having Bamford DLC code the Yachtmaster and put Popeye on the dial. You know, that's not the same thing. That's not what we're talking about. It's not really modification, is it? It's like, um, I don't know, how would you really define it? Like oiling a movement better than it was oiled when it left the factory? Yeah, or maybe amending the design, original design flaws, or refinishing flaws, or bettering the original just refinish or original. Bettering finish. the original process, really. That's what he's doing here. What original pro? Yeah, 
Yeah. And that's an interesting thing yeah. because it's a valid point that you make. Does that in some way make it inauthentic? Is it too good? Is that a thing? Come on, that can't be a thing. I mean, looking at the watch from a historical perspective is one thing, right? right? You, you don't you don't wear history, you wear the watch. So in the end, you want the watch to be awesome that you, that's on your wrist. Yeah, and I suppose, and does it only matter when we're talking about value? At this stage, no, because this is a couple hundred euro watch. Mm. But if you think about a, a, a vintage Patek, but at the end of the day, a Patek is, again, a piece of art. So even if it's refinished to a different you know, style, it's just going to better the watch, better the value, I think, because it's going to be a unique piece. Uh, well, it's an interesting, interesting way to look at it. Yeah. Um, I think like... It's a good podcast topic. It is topic. a good podcast topic. We should do a podcast about it like we are by mm-hmm. accident. Um, I really do think that um, when it comes down to a really collectible piece, say an old GMT Master or a, a rare Speedmaster or a Daytona, for example, I think it's probably always better to keep it honest, right, from a value perspective. Just don't mess with it at all. Don't even have it. Don't even have the case refinished by Rolex, let alone a superior specialist, right? So in those cases, this kind of refinishing wouldn't be advised, but neither would any kind of refinishing. I think that if you're ever going to put your watch under a mop or submit it to any polishing compound of any kind, you might as well have that polishing done as well as it can be done. Now, is it inauthentic for someone to polish it better than it was polished originally? I don't think it is because, you know, you can, you have got different grades of polishers and watchmakers within companies anyway. You know, if you've got a new guy who's just started working on a particular type of movement sitting next to a dude that's been doing it for five years, you know, and one's right at the beginning of that career path and the other one's right at the end about to move on to something else. The expectation is the other guy, the, the guy that's been there for five years is going to do a better job of servicing that movement. He's going to lubricate it better. He's going to be able to spot things that the new guy can't spot. That's okay, right? We've got to have that, that grade. Well, that's the question if it's okay or not. But as you said, or as I said, this is the, this is a whole podcast topic. So let's not jump into that. But it's a good, it's a very interesting question to talk about, to think about it. Yeah. Okay. We can chew over it some other um, time. I'm sure it'll come up. Now we've put it in our heads and on the airwaves. Um, I'm sure we won't forget it. It is an interesting one though. You've really, really uncorked something there. I'm impressed. True. True. So uh, next question. How long does it take to restore a completely battered case? Well, that's a difficult question as it always depends on the case design and condition. Zeratsu case restoration is unlike anything else and it is very time consuming. After fabricating my own dedicated tools, case holders, chucks, and other equipment, my work became a lot easier, but it still takes hours and hours to refinish one case. The process starts from removing the movement and then dismantling the case. Then I ultrasonically clean everything and inspect each component under a microscope. Then, if necessary, I add material to the case using laser welding techniques, and then once I've reproduced the basic case shape so it's ready for polishing, work can begin. The most labor-intensive stage is the Zeratsu polishing, which alone may even take a few hours. And that depends on how many facets must be polished or brushed. I think it takes around 10 to 12 hours to restore a Zeratsu case, considering my experience and advanced equipment. Whoa, there's a lot of Zeratsus in there and a lot of time. Uh, Sorry, I really struggle with the word. 
And I think that's just the finishing, right? Once, yeah. as he said, once everything is like dismantled, cleaned, uh, laser uh, welded, then you have this raw case. Then it takes 10 to 12 hours to to actually refinish it. So I'm guessing a watch could take up to two days from like two eight-hour work days to finish. I guess it can be. So um, let's skip ahead to the next question to answer answer what's on everyone's minds. Yes, exactly. And how much does it cost roughly to do that? Again, the cost is based on the time that is required to restore each case. But let's say that the general Zeratsu process costs between 300 and 350 euros. But most vintage Grand Seiko and King Seiko cases can be restored for 300 to 320 euros. What do you think about the price? I think it's crazy low. You know, what always makes me laugh about these things, like it's the second part of the sentence that makes me, makes me laugh most because he says most of the Grand Seiko and King Seiko cases can be restored for 300 to 320, as if that's like a massive saving. It's like it's 30 euros and we're talking about, you know, around 10%. Of, of the total cost, which is like, come on, 350, 350. And um, there must be an, there must be higher costs sometimes when it's a really bad case, but. Slow your horses because yes, I think it's not expensive, but these watches are not 5,000 euros and that doesn't include servicing the movement. So if you put another four or 500 on serve, or let's say 300 on servicing, because maybe parts are needed, then it's a 800 to 1,000, 1,200 euro watch, and you spend six, 700 on servicing. Granted, you're going to be an absolutely breathtakingly new looking watch, but it's still going to cost you like 50, 60% of the, the price you paid for the, for sure. the timepiece. Okay, but right? I mean, the service cost, you can't bring that into this equation because that either is going to be paid or not going to be paid. You know, like if a watch needs a service, it needs a service. So, you know yeah but he needs to bring it in because the 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 buyer needs to bring it in because if it's gonna let's say it's gonna cost me 500 euros and the service is another 300 that's 800 and the watch was 950 i'm definitely not gonna pay 800 for that well fair enough um i think that for what you're getting it's a bargain also true also true and and it's very cheap. I mean, three fifty. You know, you're is, right. I you're right to to point out the retail or the expected cost of these watches. Um, but this is not an expensive price for any kind of finishing. If you sent your Seamaster into Omega to be polished, you'd be paying more than that just to get it um, brushed up there. You know, this isn't the same kind of thing. This is Zeratsu finishing, and it's. 300 350 euros like that's really good because this is a guy that you know you can talk to you can work with him on eye level you, you're going to know him you're going to build a relationship with him and uh it could you know it could be a, a lifelong sort of collecting partnership if you want to buy seikos but you're obsessed with the cases being finished absolutely perfectly then he's your guy and for that kind of money you know, sure, maybe it's a hobby. Maybe that's more than you spend on the watch in the first place, but maybe you don't care because maybe you want the most box, fresh, sweet, shiny, sharply finished example of it in the world. And you can have it for 300 euros. Also true. Also you know. true. And anyway, it must be successful. Yeah. Look at the answer to the next question. For how long are you booked up with work? Now I'm booked for a year. I have a few remaining spots in February and April 2022. I don't know if that's a typo. But that sounds what? about right. I'm in a very comfortable position 
in which I can select the cases that I want to restore, focusing on the examples that interest me. Having such a busy schedule is a good and a bad thing at the same time. On the one hand, I don't have to worry if I have enough work to feel safe and comfortable. But on the other hand, my customers sometimes don't want to wait so long. Many things happen during the year. Some customers may cancel their slots and then extra spaces will open up sooner. So it's always a good idea to contact me, Camille, not Rob, and ask. I always try to offer the best solution for everyone. Fair enough. Very good. Next. Do you ever think about expanding your business, perhaps taking on an apprentice? Yes, I do, but it's not as easy as it seems. My work is very specific and requires some unique skills. It would be great if those skills could be learned in school, but unfortunately they can't. That is a great Seiko secret, how to perform Zeratsu finishing, and I find my own way to achieve the same results. I remember how hard it was to find any slice of information, any clue that could lead me in the right direction. A few years ago, in some article, I read that only the best Seiko polishing specialists can perform Zeratsu finishing, and I believe that there's something true about that. Devotion to perfection and the know-how one can only accrue after years of experience are essential to achieving perfect results. For now, I'm doing everything by myself, starting from developing the tools to sending the packages out to my customers. I'd love to have someone who can help me with my office work, but when it comes to the polishing, I'd rather do it myself because I like to seek the best possible results. You know what comes to my mind? If we do this road trip and then have my watch refinished, it would be really cool to send the watch to Seiko in Japan and ask one of their experts to give us an opinion about the finishing. <laughs> yeah. Because as he said, only the best can work with the Zaratsu, uh, on Zaratsu finishing. That would be fascinating, wouldn't it? It would be fascinating to know. And I mean, talk about a ballsy play on Camille's part, if you'd be happy mm -hmm. to do that. I mean putting it in front of the masters. but without any without any info you know without telling psycho anything like here's a watch get one of your case you know finisher experts and tell us what he thinks he or she thinks about this would be interesting we can definitely try Obviously, it like wow why not yeah. why not um yeah. ask me the next question if you could work with any watchmaker who would it be oh that's a nice question if you could work with any watchmaker who would it be? I definitely prefer to be independent and don't even think about working for any company. But in theory, it would be someone who designs their cases in a way that I like. I think that I could apply my skills to some of Audemars Piguet's cases, if, of course, I couldn't work with Grand Seiko. Interesting. I'd love to see him go to town on an AP concept case. You know, one of those big old crazy ones. Yeah. That would be awesome. The finish he could get on that would be just nuts. Or any of the small auto lingerie brands? Who, which brand comes to mind when you think of beautiful case finishing, exquisite? Well, you know, you know I didn't think about it that way, actually. I, I didn't ask the question because I was looking for a, a company that already had beautiful case finishing. Quite the opposite. I was looking for a company that had a beautiful case shape that I thought he could make better. Okay, just so tell me a company you think has a beautiful case shape where Camille could probably upgrade the look with his skills. I'd like to see what he would do with Stepan Sarpanieva's uh, like Northern Lights collection with all those like scalloped portions of the bezels and on the lugs. I think there's a lot of angles that he mm -hmm. could work with there. I'm just thinking of like an angular case, something like a, a, a Grunefeld Principia maybe, like the, the lugs are quite interesting. That would really benefit from Zeratsu as well, I think. What about uh, Chapek? The, uh, the Antarctic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that would be pretty nice. It's an interesting one. I'm not sure how much of an improvement he could make on that. It depends 
whether we changed the sunburst, the radial finish of the, of the top of the case, because it's a tonneau shape really, isn't it? And it has quite a thin slither mm-hmm. of polish down the edge of the case. Could be interesting to see for sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That would be nice. And what if we talk about your favorite micro brand? Or Laventure. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. Uh, that is quite a good... What do you yeah, think that's about a, that? that's a pretty good choice, actually, because you could probably do quite a lot of nice stuff with those lugs. And the flared case mm-hmm. is, if you will, the bits that recall the Nautilus design. Um, they could be polished. The, the Marine. Well, I mean, the Marine, the Sumarine, the Transatlantique all have the same case middle. They all use the same. Right, but for example, the Marine has the be- the steel bezel. Right, right? right. The other two have uh, ceramic bezel or, or dive bezel, but this one is like a flat bezel, so... He could do something. The marine there. bezel would be very interesting. Yeah, yeah, that would be very nice. He'd definitely do a good job of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good choice. Yeah. So two of my favorite brands um, popped into that one. Yeah, Chapek and Laventure. Mm-hmm. What about you? Have you got any off the top of your head that you'd like to see? No, the, the Laventure came to mm-hmm. came to mm-hmm. me actually um, because of this of the case shape for auto lingerie. Um, for some reason, Urvec is in my head, but Urvec is more curved you know mm, that'd be interesting though wouldn't it i mean if you what i was thinking really is like could we uh could we get camille in in a situation where he was almost designing a case for a brand that he could then exact his talents upon yeah imagine if you could design a case based on your the, the the different types of decorations that you could do exactly that to me would be interesting. like i want to do uh this type and the bevel that and the this and the sunburst this and yeah it could be a mix of everything it could look ugly or it could come out something very interesting where you could showcase your talent and your skills when it comes to right decoration. my thinking was there's nobody that knows you know what these machines can do and how they do it better than an experienced polisher so why not have the polisher design the case so they can uh, express those finishes in the best possible way. However, if you uh, just drop the next question for me, we'll uh, we'll see what Camille thinks about this, because this is my fantasy and quite clearly not his. Would you like to apply your talents to new watches also? To be honest, not really. As I mentioned before, my goal is not only to finish the cases, but rather to bring the cases back to their former glory. My work is not about finishing, but restoration. I also can't see myself finishing the same case model over and over and over again. I have this wonderful opportunity that allows me to restore completely different cases every single day, and I decide myself which case is next. This freedom of choice is very important to me, and it lets me feel like I have control over my work. At the end of the day, I don't feel tired or unsatisfied. I can plan my work the way I like, and that makes me happy. Can I say that, I don't know if it's the right word to use, but can I say that, and I really mean no disrespect that Camille is a case refinishing nerd <laughs> to me he sounds like the guy is like yeah i don't care about brands i don't care about cases i care about the stuff that i know and i know that i'm really very very good at it well yeah i mean he's a fan and, first and foremost isn't he and he's just become an expert in a yeah. field that interested him so I, I i love his dedication i i said that before but hats down to you Camille. next do you have tips for our collecting community on fratello on what to avoid buying. What elements of a watch case are particularly hard to refinish, I mean? I have many emails from my future customers. In these emails, they ask me about my collecting tips. 
before they purchase the watch itself. It's very helpful to know what to avoid from my point of view. This will make my work easier and also helps my customers save some money, especially if there are very few important factors that could be a source of potential problems when it comes to restoration. I always advise finding the watch with a nice original dial. Dial restoration usually means repainting, which in most cases decreases the watch's value. Of course, sometimes, when the dial is completely damaged or unreadable, repainting is the only way to save the watch. But if it has some minor imperfections, like a light patina or tiny watermarks, for example, it's a good idea to just accept it, if you can. You can find spare hands or crystals, but dials are usually hard to source, so find the best example you can and just live with it as it is. Another thing is the case back. By inspecting the case back, you can very often tell the true condition of the watch. If the case is badly scratched and marked, you can probably assume the watch has had a hard life. In normal wear, the top of a case might be scratched and worn, but the case back touches your wrist, so it should be safe from that kind of damage. If it's dinged or bent, be aware that the watch has not been cared for properly. Also, if there are marks after opening the watch, you might suspect that somebody incompetent has tried to open the watch and tried to service it even, there may be some potential damage to the movement. When it comes to Grand Seiko and King Seiko casebacks, there is another important thing that is worth checking, the gold medallion. If original, it should be made of solid 18 karat yellow gold, but it is sometimes replaced with fake metal medallions, which look much worse and also get worn very quickly. Original medallions are very thin, so they might be worn or even partly gone after decades of wearing, but it's still better than a cheap replacement. It's also good to pay attention to the corrosion marks on a case. Considering poor quality of vintage Seiko steel, corrosion marks are very common. In those cases, it was very easy for moisture to get into the steel pores and cracks and cause serious damage. When it comes to watches with broken bezels, which is a very common issue, don't worry so much. Usually it can be repaired. If you find your dream watch and you spot some tiny marks between the lugs or on the side, just be aware that they might be hard or impossible to remove and that you might have to accept them and enjoy the watch regardless. If you take care of the watch properly, you'll be able to enjoy it for the next few decades as existing imperfections will not affect the future condition of the case. Woo! What a great answer. Yeah, he's got some good tips there, hasn't he? I mean, there's, there's some things can't be fixed and if you're cool with that, don't worry. But there are some things... And knowing those things is important. Some things that can cause serious problems and can't be come back from. So, yeah, he's not claiming to be a a miracle worker. No magic wand. He can do wonderful, wonderful things, but you've got to give him a good subject or something that's at least repairable first. Can we say that King Psycho watches are still underappreciated in the vintage community? What do you think? Or is it now not a secret anymore? Oh, I think it still is a bit of a secret, actually. I think that... um, these things take their time to get out there, don't they? And um, it seems to us, I mean, we're right on the front line of this stuff. We're surrounded by Seiko collectors. We're writing about watches every day. Thousands of watches passing through our hands every month. It's um, it's not as loud a rumor that King Seiko are cool as we think it is. I still think mm-hmm. there's chance to maybe get ahead of a curve which can only be going up in the next few years with Seiko's growing popularity and Grand Seiko's massive improvements in their international marketing structure. So yeah, I think there's still time. Still mm-hmm. time. I mean, you've got... And there's plenty of them on eBay and yeah, other auctions. There's sites. a ton. They're massively underrated as well, I think. And you've got a really nice example there, which I guess you're going to hold on to for a long time. And uh, yeah, I'm jealous. Yeah. No, I, and this was okay, this was just a couple hundred years when I bought it years ago. But I remember getting the same one with a a patinated, like an orange dial. 
I sold that one. But that was really a lovely piece. And it was so imperfect, you know, because the dial is supposed to be silver or white. And it was like orange brown, probably from from a previous water damage. But the, the watch was fine. But there are so many of them out there and with different movements and the different cases. We talked about the monocoque or the monoblock case, bracelets and and um, King Psycho bracelets and things like that. So, yeah, it's a very, very fascinating uh, world, Vintage Psycho, and especially Vintage King Psycho, Grand Psycho, but also the chronographs. I enjoyed this podcast i enjoyed it too it was a real discovery and i hope that our listeners enjoyed it also and um you know you've got some beautiful pictures to scroll through on instagram there and it's a fascinating interview we are publishing the interview as well in text so you can go through it and have a read and feel free to ask any questions to us um, about um what we talked about today about uh Camille's background availability of course contact him as well if you've got something you'd like him to work on and maybe now is the time for us to all rush out and look at King Seiko as an option now we have a way of uh, getting them refinished to almost brand new standard go Run. do it and let Run. us know let us know on, in, on Instagram T- yeah, tag, tag us. us send us and if any of you are listening you've already worked with Camille then please do share pictures with us um mm. tag us on the instagram stories whatever we'd love to see it we'll reshare it it'd be fascinating for us and for everybody else involved balaj thanks mate it was uh mm-hmm. it was a little bit longer than i expected um but yeah good stuff and a good chat and we've got ourselves uh, a road trip booked in for the future there and i can't wait no absolutely the pleasure is all mine i really enjoyed it as i said uh crazy cool stuff you can also find by the way uh camille on facebook forward slash lapinist forward slash then you find his facebook page um with many of his works as well as a few articles written about him by other publications which we will not mention because we're not going to give them any marketing but now these these are friends you will see who they are uh thanks a lot rob for pulling me in i uh, hate you for uh you know taking two hours out of my afternoon but i love you for introducing me to this guy and his work okay um you're welcome and i will see you back in the smooth booth for our next episode of wasp which we're recording in a couple of days so remember guys tune in tune in always for a fratello on air podcast whether it's talking about watches whether it's talking about sports whether it's talking about refinishing whatever it is it's always good to have you here thanks for coming thanks for listening stay safe and until next time keep on ticking Mm -hmm.